0: Hi, welcome to the Minority Money Podcast with our dad, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, the best dad in the whole world. You know why we think he's the best? Because he teaches us stuff, good stuff about life and money. We know you will love him as much as we do. So So let's let's get get on on with with the the show. show. Welcome to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles-Vattingly, founder and president of Gen Next Wealth, a fee-only financial planning and investment firm. I will have to ask all of our listeners today, early in the show, to please excuse my voice. My son, Emlyn II, got me sick, so my voice is going in and out. I do apologize for that. However, the show must go on, and today we are going to be blessed with the presence of Prince Marshall. As you know, we are in the month of February, and we are continuing in our month of education focus. And Prince has an incredible story about how he got into education and where he's at now. And I won't take any more time away from him. Prince, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be here to share my story.
0: And so Prince and I have met through a mutual friend who introduced us. Shout out to Todd Lyle. Todd Lyle. Thank you very much, Mr. Lyle, for making this happen. And good dude. Great good guy, dude. right? Yeah. And Prince and I have some mutual friends that make this even better. So we're going to continue in this vein of education and, and talking about the importance of it. Prince, if you wouldn't mind, introduce yourself to the Minority Money podcast listeners.
1: Yeah, no problem. So my name is Prince Marshall. I'm currently working as a principal at Southwest Fresno Middle School, which is, is in the Area code 93706, which is a very familiar side of town, the side of town I grew up in. The middle school I attended is maybe a few blocks away from this middle school, but they all feed into the high school that I've graduated from, which is Washington Union. So I'm blessed to be back home in the community, the district that I grew up in, and being able to serve those community members that are out there. So it's cool to even see some of old friends and their kids coming through the system and being able to support them as
0: well. Awesome. And I think that it's important, like for us to have, as everybody knows, this is Black History Month. Yep. And I think it's something that's not talked about a lot. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it, but I am going to touch on it. Prior to the desegregation of the schools, the leading profession for African Americans was education. Mm-hmm. And post-desegregation when a lot of the uh, African-American teachers lost their jobs because they desegregated the schools, but they didn't desegregate the workforce, right? They they kept the workforce the same, which was not black. And a lot of people were job displaced, but to be able to come back and to be able to talk to not only someone that's in education, but as as an administrator, as yourself, I think it's incredible. And I think the listeners are in for a treat as we talk about your story. So. I think education is the equalizer. And that's what the topic of this show is going to be. It's going to be about education, the great equalizer. And I think that you can speak directly to this. And And now you're the principal in a school a few miles away from the school that you want to. Yes, sir. And so I just give the listeners a little bit about your journey from where you started in the education system to being becoming the principal.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, even a little more background story to that is that I grew up in a single parent home. My mom raised both myself and my brother. And, you know, I remember receiving government assistance as a part of that journey as well. So really deeply embedded in poverty. And, you know, I just wrote a piece for a newsletter. And one of the quotes was, you know, as a child, you don't know what you're embedded into You kind of just go through the motions, right? And and moms does things. She makes magic happen with getting food on the table. But as you mentioned, that desegregation piece and also that piece where communities are displaced into certain concentrated areas by design is definitely an important facet. And that's something I discovered in my journey here. We were in collaboration with an outside entity called Every Neighborhood Project. And they provided us with some information that shared we were in a red line community. I was like, man, this explains X, Y, and Z. This explains this. So I started conducting a lot more research. And it was just shocking to me to hear that because I grew up in that community, but not knowing it was by design, if that makes any sense to you.
0: When you say red line community, just for people that might not know what that means, can you touch on that? What is a red line community?
1: Yeah, so basically, if if we're going to speak to the segregation, right, it, it's a community that's specifically concentrated where minorities, and in this case, African Americans, could only purchase homes in this part of town. Mm-hmm. So they weren't allowed to purchase homes, for example, in Clovis. We were all corralled into one area, which kind of gives you that lower socioeconomic displacement, and there's a lot of inequity that's that's in that, and so. I saw a video where within the writing in some of the banks do not sell this home if the person is African-American, Hispanic or whatever. So they even made it legal. So that was a little eye opening as well. But as I continue to study out real history and not his story, I get a better idea of what this design is all about. And then coming back into the field of education, I can see the strain and the impact on the system. And and I get an idea of where that kind of stems
0: from. It's crazy. Like, We sit here and we're talking about this, but systemic displacement still exists. Oh, yeah. And it's still going on. Like, like, I know we we just had, you know, Martin Luther King, we celebrated Martin Luther King Day a few weeks ago, and we're sitting here and we're talking about what's going on with redlining. And this is something that's still a real topic and real issue that is going on with minority children. In minorities in general, like I want you to just kind of touch on a little bit about your journey and some of the things that you had to go through to get to where you are now. Like people love to hear stories, and I think your story is one that has to be told. Like we got to get this out. Like people need to hear this. Yeah,
1: no, I appreciate that. And just going back to being raised as a single parent, I basically, my journey into the education forum began with the notion of thinking I was going to be a top draft pick for a college for basketball, but not realizing being five, six, that was not a a big opportunity that was going to happen or come my way. So I ended up walking down to the career center at high school and just registering for all the state colleges because I would missed the UC college registration. Still went about my business, not knowing if I was going to make it in the college or not to be accepted. I had exceptional grades I was at about a 3.7 GPA in high school I had a cousin I tried to keep up with as far as his academics and we pushed each other as far as sports were concerned that's really what kept me out of trouble and then they accepted to Fresno State and I was like man this is cool so what now no one in my family had taken the path of going through a university or college so my I couldn't go to my mom for advice really couldn't go to aunts and uncles so I just kind of figured it out on my own really I did have a, an aunt Diane, who supported me with transportation, getting me there mm-hmm. to the college and meet with the counselors and then listening to them and allowing them to set the path for me. So that really started the journey in that aspect. But looking, if you read any information on Ruby Payne, a cycle of poverty, that's what I was in, but not knowing at the time. So working through that, having a child earlier in my life through uh, by my girlfriend, who's now my wife. Would have been another barrier that I'd added to the educational pathway. So at that time, I was working multiple jobs and trying to finish school. It took me eight years to get through Fresno State. I was initially enrolled to becoming a physician's assistant because that's what my family wanted me to do. But when it came down to financial aid about to be cut off and running out of time, my wife pushed me and she asked, You know, what do you love to do when you're enjoying yourself? And I'm like, Well, it's working with kids. I was like, She goes, you need to get your liberal studies degree and go after. So went after that, finished it up in two semesters. But, you know, along that journey, I I was working as a part-time janitor within a, a middle school that I attended as a youth. I got hired there, worked my way up, working grounds. I drove the van in the morning and the afternoon because all I knew was to work hard and hustle. And I had a family to support and feed. So I always had my hands when something extra came up around campus. I was like, I'll do it. I can do that. Then moved into becoming a kitchen aide as well, because there was no one on campus that could work with the kitchen aide. She was a little grumpy, but I found some entry points, which were her grandkids. And, and that was our conversation. That allowed for me to work in peace and get things done. So working through that kitchen aid, janitor, that then evolved into coaching some sports on campus, which I really loved. Allowed me to get some experience with being an athletic director which i gained enough units at one time to be able to substitute teach. So I was subbing in the classrooms quite a bit, which later evolved into my wife being hired as a teacher out in Mendota. I followed her because the pay was more, right? When you're young, you're always following the money. Ended up working out there, ran an after-school program, then was encouraged to get my credential. And through that credential, I ended up landing a first grade teaching position. And I enjoyed it. I taught in the classroom for about five years and was sitting in my portable one day looking out the window and felt like I wanted to have a larger impact on the student body. So that's when an opportunity came up to become, uh, take some administrative courses to gain that credential, jumped into that program and kind of just, you know, finish that out. And at the end of that, went on a interviewing spree. The district I was working for didn't give me an opportunity to even apply for a position. So I looked outside the district went through six different interviews, went to the second round on four of those six. So I was green. Some people felt I had something to offer, just didn't have the experience. Last interview was with Madeira South, sending Schwartz took a chance on me. He was a principal at the time. That's where I met Todd Lyle. And he gave a, a good word for me as far as some background information he obtained through an uncle that he had an opportunity of coaching with at Fresno City. And they pulled me in. I couldn't have landed in a much better place and let alone experience a $30,000 increase in pay. So I was like, man, I think I made it, <laughs> right? Yeah. So coming from the block cheese, the pig on the white can, pork, to, okay, I, I can buy a few things here and, and kind of relax a little bit and not have to worry too much about finances. I, I kind of felt like my education uh, supported that for me because without it, we'd probably be having a different conversation right now.
0: I always think about the serendipitous relationships that you have and people that you meet because Coach Schwartz was my basketball coach
1: mm-hmm. when
0: I played. And, and we didn't know this prior to getting on here. Another, another connection, yeah. you know, to be able to have him. His dad was my PE teacher when I was in junior high. So I know, you know, Coach Schwartz, shout out to Coach Schwartz, yep. uh, always yelling at us to run and, <laughs> and mess with us and stuff. Yeah, But I, I think like your journey is an unfamiliar journey especially as a young black man in the Central Valley. Mm -hmm. When you come through here, like it's, you can count your friends that have two parents on one hand. Yes. Like you can count your friends that know who their father is or have a relationship with their dad on one hand. And to see you navigate your way through that, starting as, you know, where you started at and to make it to becoming a principal, man, I, I commend you for that. Thank you. Shout out to your mom. For sure, yeah. You know, I mean, got to show her some love because, you know, uh, there's a lot of single mothers out there. And Shout out to all the single mothers out there that are raising strong young men, not receiving the credit that they should probably receive in the absence of fathers. But they are doing it. I'm a product of a single mom as well, you know, being raised by a community with my grandmother and my aunt, and my uncles and everybody putting in a community effort. But yeah. definitely want to say that because you grabbed a hold of your education it's beginning to make things at least a little more equal. I won't say that it's completely equal, but I say that it's giving some <laughs> amount of equity to what's going on.
1: I, I got my foot in the door somehow. It's blocking the door from closing. That's what it's
0: doing. All we needed was an opportunity, right? Just that's let me it. get in. Like, just let me get Need in. Give me a
1: crack of space. I'm going I'm to
0: break my way through. That's what's going on. I appreciate that, brother. Yeah. I appreciate that. So why is diversity and equity so important to you?
1: Well, I feel growing up in the Central Valley, diversity is already at the table. So to me, equity weighs more when you can give those people at the table value and voice and an opportunity to impact. So I'm looking past diversity and I'm listening to those that sit around my table as we aim to build community and bring in stakeholders within this site and give those people a voice because you can get the people at the table and still oppress them, right? So it's about moving towards giving them a voice and allowing for them to be heard because they're in the trenches, they live there every day. I'm no longer out there. The demographics have shifted. I'm driving in from my nice area back into you know, the 93706 zip code. And who best know the community than those who are living in the community? I mean, my role is of an authority. I put quotation marks up. But I feel it's more facilitating a process as opposed to dictating a process.
0: Like, I think it's so important, like for people to be able to see, mm-hmm. especially children growing up, going to school, being able to see other minorities in a leadership role.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: My daughter was very fortunate to have her sixth grade teacher was black. And it was Coach Smith. Shout out to Alan Smith and Alex. Alan, the twins. Yeah, I yeah, around he, in high school, lives around the corner from you right now. <laughs> Another connection. But I never had that experience of having. A black teacher, Mm -hmm. whether it was male or female, never had that. I remember like having conversations with my daughter about just about Mr. Smith. She loved Mr. Smith, but it was something like that's something that I could be. Like I could be a teacher if I want to be a teacher. Right. You know, and I think until we can see it, we talk, I've talked about this on other podcast episodes, but until kids can see something that's different than what they've seen all their life, Mm -hmm. they can't visualize themselves as being that. And to be able to see, a man of color in a position, not only an educator, but to be an administrative and to be the principal of the school, I think is so impactful. And I just think that it, it really expands the minds of the children that you were able to work with. And that's why I think diversity is ultra Definitely. important because yes. if they don't see it, then they never even strive to try to be it. Mm-hmm. But now that I can come in and I can see Mr. Marshall, Principal Marshall at the school, like, oh, well, then I can be a principal. Right. You know, and, and I think that's super important.
1: Yeah, that layer of diversity is definitely important. We need educators in the rooms that represent our students. And currently, right now in California, we don't have that. I know my one and only public educational African American teacher, my third grade teacher, Miss Walker. I remember her like it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. Didn't treat me any different than the other kids, but I remember her. She was my only one throughout mm-hmm. the path, and then maybe a few sprinkled in there in college, depending on what path where you were taking. But yeah. It's definitely a drought out there, but I think um, there are some universities that are working at building a pipeline and acquiring minorities and diversity into the field.
0: And I think it's so important like that this becomes a, a viable option for people of color, not only Black, but our, our Latino brothers and sisters out there when it comes to them, some of the other minority ethnicities that are out there. like It's important for us to have our people out there in the forefront. Where our children can see them, so that they know that those are options for them. No doubt. How would you say that poverty affects education to people that don't know? Because I think it's something that we really don't think about. How does poverty affect education?
1: There's so many elements to poverty that impact education. Because you narrow it down to, in my case, a community that's been neglected for years. There's so much residue that's left behind. I've Conducted so much research, I haven't read this much since college. I didn't read much in college, but <laughs> I've been reading a lot since I became a principal of a middle school. Mm-hmm. And there's a great book I just found it's by Sia Ver Sheldon. It's called "Bandwidth Recovery: Helping Students Reclaim Cognitive Resources Lost to Poverty, Racism, and Social Marginalization." So through that, stress blocks out thinking. If I have a student that's sitting in class trying to learn math, but he's worried about, am I going to have something to eat when I get home? Or is is dad going to still be there when I get home? And he just hit mom last night. You know, Their cognitive ability is clouded. So I love the book. She called it bandwidth recovery. If you think of a phone, if you're in a tunnel, you're not going to get very good bandwidth. So being in poverty and the multiple elements and facets that come with being in poverty, really impact your cognitive ability to even make decisions, to make choices, to learn. So with my staff, I took us back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where your basic needs need to be met before we can even access the curriculum. So building relationships with kids are big, and Sandon hooked me up to that. When we started our year themed out, we need to have relationships. Because a good relationship, as you know, kids will run through a brick wall for you. They don't like you, it's like, whatever. I'm not trying to learn this. I don't even want to be here, but I'm here because I have to
0: be. Like when you say bandwidth, that just really resonates. Like, I I mean, there's not a person that's going to listen to this that doesn't have a cell phone. Right. And simply put, poverty affects the bandwidth. So the connection to education, if you're coming from a poverty-stricken neighborhood or poverty-stricken zip code, the 93706, you taught in Madera, you you understand how Madera is and it's it's like that. I
1: love Madera.
0: And there's a lot of zip codes that are like that yeah. throughout California and throughout the rest of our country. And if you don't know where your next meal's coming from, or the stability of your home isn't where it could be, or there's physical abuse, and you just articulated a physical abuse of that's not taking place to the child, but then we do have cases where children are actually being abused as well. Right. To think about all that and say, okay, so now you have someone that doesn't have that relationship with the child trying to tell them what they could do and not yeah. and especially someone that may have never lived through mm-hmm. those situations trying to tell a child what they should and shouldn't do and how they should and shouldn't respond and and then that same child that their parents are not working out or maybe there's only one parent and they can't make it to a parent teacher conference and so now the teacher thinks that the parents don't care but it's not that right. they don't care they're working a graveyard shift, they're doing something, right? So not, I mean, parents,
1: when they first hold their child, they want the best for their child. In my case, there was a short span of time before my mom passed, years before she passed, she was involved in substance abuse. Mm -hmm. So she did the best she could with what she knew how, with what she had. Mm -hmm. There were days I came home, kid you not, there was only a jug of water in the refrigerator. Mm -hmm. I'm not lying. So I ate at school when I could. I was an athlete. So whatever, you know, we went to Johnny Quick, got a slice of pizza and head back to practice. So with that in mind, it's very important to keep those facets in concealed in the back. But a majority of, of our instructors are from that middle class lens that really need to work towards having that connection.
0: Man, I'm listening to what you're saying. And I'm thinking like I was that kid. Mm-hmm. Like we, growing up, I remember my grandparents would give me not as much as some, but more than most. Like they give me $10 a week for lunch. Make it work. That's basically $2 a day. You got to figure something out. You know? <laughs> yeah. And this is back before they had the programs in the school district where all the kids would get to eat. So it was, mm-hmm. you know, we're grinded, literally. Yeah. And as an athlete, 14, 15, 16, 17 year old boy, when you're growing and you're eating everything in sight, yeah. young women and young men that are just have this appetite because you're actually growing and not having enough to eat at home. Yeah. And then we're going back and we're saying, "Well, this kid doesn't perform in school." It's just a real moment for me to just kind of sit back and think about, you know, not only myself but some of the kids I went to school with and and kids that are still in the school system now. Oh, yeah. And don't even talk about undiagnosed, you know, mental health issues. Don't let me get into that. Like I won't even go there.
1: And if you think of the communities that we're talking about, what access do I have to healthy food? Like you couldn't tell that I grew up with not a lot of food because I'm chubby. I'm a chubby dude. So we had McDonald's that was down the street. It's cool to go get a cheeseburger for 59 cents, right? You can buy 10 of them and be all right after that. So it even comes down to what resources are in your neighborhood, in your community. I lived in Madeira for 10 years. And there was a day that really realized for me, like where the line was drawn. I went to a store looking for almond milk. And they're like, we don't carry that here. And I was like, what? I got to go on this side of town to go get almond milk. It's not even available mm-hmm. over here. It's a wide spectrum as far as what I've learned within the past few years as far as the impact of poverty and then what's available resources are out there. I mean, we want our kids to eat healthy, but there aren't any healthy choices. So hot Cheetos is on the menu.
0: Hot Cheetos with some nacho cheese on them. That's yeah. worth it. That's worth <laughs> That's it. The,
1: yeah. That's
0: a delicacy right there. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: So, how did like following your passion. Can you talk about that a little bit, how following your passion led you to where you are now?
1: I transfer over a lot of what I took from high school sports because I feel like sports raised me. I feel like coaches gave me the discipline. My mom did the best she could, and she was a very strict woman. But as far as a male figure, that's where I obtained that from. So I've always had this tenacity just to be competitive. I played for a high school that had a tradition for being well-known in basketball, right? I was a starting point guard for this team. I played football. So I transferred all that over into my current role as an educator because I didn't make it to the league, but I still got this burning passion inside of me. I kind of feel like a LeBron or, you know, a Kobe <laughs> without that level of recognition for the work that I do. And I'm always fighting for an underdog. I don't think I would enjoy, well, maybe I would because it would be as stressful, Enjoy weren't. Well, you have your different issues in in affluent areas, right? But I've always chosen to work in the most challenging areas because I know those areas need need the most attention. So knowing that wakes me up every morning. That's the passion. Like, ooh, okay, who can I win today? Who can I bring over? Who can I support? What family can we get on board? From the lens of some educators, I won't say all. There's some oppression because we hold that authority piece and we want to hold kids down. So when I can get a kid in a winning position that was losing, I feel good. Because everyone's potential is limitless, Mm -hmm. and I believe in that. So my passion is really fighting for that underdog, because I feel I was an underdog. I still am. So it's all about blazing that pathway for those who don't have a voice for themselves and for those who are striving to find themselves in some cases. And education isn't for every student that walks through that door. We might get some vocational opportunities for kids. So, you know, providing some options and really supporting, clearing up their bandwidth per se is a part of my
0: passion. Sitting here thinking about like hearing you talk about different people that are in education. I think about different teachers that I had and I won't name them all, but Mm -hmm. definitely I remember my kindergarten teacher, Miss Tiffin. I remember Miss Tiffin. I remember Mrs. Ward in my first grade, Mrs. Lopez in second grade. I remember all of my teachers, but there were certain ones like Mr. Gortney. Rest in peace, Mr. Gordon. Mr. Gordon passed away. Mrs. Carter, my sixth grade teacher. There was just so many different people that took me and did things like as an adult now knowing, you know, teachers are regular people.
1: Right. Yeah. They go grocery shopping and they do all that. good yeah, stuff.
0: They put their pants on one <laughs> leg at a time. They got emotions. Yep. They got stuff that they got to deal with. And like these people took parts of their lives and took money out of their pocket and put time and effort into me as a young man. And And so, you know, I'm thankful, so grateful. You know, I remember Coach Revia, Alan Revia, when I was at Madeira High, and and I remember Coach Adams, and and I remember Mr. Blankenship and Mrs. Belden and Mrs. Rylon who is still one of my favorite teachers. Mm-hmm. And, and there's all these different people that that I think, as you're going through your journey, I heard you talk about your mom, and my mom had a substance abuse issue as well. My mom passed away when I was 20 years old. She passed away from a drug overdose, and and I think like when I say it takes a community, I think all these people that touch my life, right? All these educators that I had in my life that touched my life. Even when I got to college, you know, Mr. D, Mr. D Aora from Merced Junior College, I remember him. He still comments on everything that I post on social media to this day. And shout out to you, Mr. D, if you ever listen to this. <laughs> but there was just some impactful people, and I think like your story, where you're coming from and what you're doing in the area that you grew up from, because so easy to leave from that area and, and go somewhere else to a middle class area even make more money in those districts because there's just more money to be spread around. Right, It's admirable. And I kid you not, I was very comfortable in the Dare unified, not
1: comfortable, still pressed and pushed and motivated. But my mom always told me, you need to come back home. You need to be in your community. You need to serve out here. So she passed two years ago and she rest in peace. And I was able to fulfill her dream two years later. So that's another part of Me, you know, I get to drive past the house I grew up in, which is a shack right now. But, you know, I feel really good about fulfilling one of my mom's, one of her wishes that she wanted me
0: to do. Education, the equalizer. Yes, sir. Education, right? Education. No one can ever take that from you. If you're going to school right now and you got those student loans and you're you're wondering about what you're going to do with that and it's become a source of anxiety, like you eventually got to pay that back. I promise you one thing. They cannot take their education away from you. You will not lose that. Right. Cars lose value. Houses get old. Shoes get old. Everything gets old. But I promise you one thing that won't get old is that degree that you get when you graduate from college. That's right. So. As you know, this is the Minority Money Podcast, and we are changing the complexion of wealth. So I want to get into those questions a little bit. And and you've talked about this already, but I just want you to just, the question is, what motivates you and inspires you to continue to grow and learn? I think to best serve
1: my community and students, you got to be innovative. You got to be ahead of the curve. So stand up on what the latest, stand up on the statistics, data, and going further than the numbers, going behind the numbers and looking at people and understanding people and diving into interdisciplinary areas, right? It's just not one-dimensional. It's multidimensional when you're working with individuals and communities. So it's really a part of my passion as well to keep up on that learning. And at the same time, I'm learning and I'm reflecting back and I can even smell and sense experiences that I had as a youth when I come across certain elements. I'm like, man, I had that. Oh, that's what that means. Oh, okay. So you get these aha moments and things are sticking out. So I can't be stagnant. Like I said, it's that competitive nature. And I feel if I'm
0: stagnant, then maybe it's time for me to step away into something else. Absolutely. And you did make a shout out to Kobe. Yes. And I'm not a Laker fan. I've been a Warriors fan since I was a kid. But my goodness, I'm still trying to wrap my head around him, passing away, the tragedy of him and the other families that were affected, not only his, but the other total of nine people that were affected. And man, prayers to all the families that were affected by this. And not only for L.A., but for our nation, because Kobe was an icon. Definitely. Do you think that education plays a role in building wealth?
1: Definitely. I'm now in spaces that I wouldn't be in without education. And even in today's world, you can get into those spaces. But for me, it's helped me to enter certain platforms that I wouldn't have access to. With my master's, which I hired a few weeks ago, at National University Mm -hmm. as a support provider. So now I'm a principal, I'm an adjunct, right? Which is gonna put me into some other spaces that provides opportunities that I can bring back to my students and my campus. Mm -hmm. So as far as being an equalizer, I say yes. I know when I was in college, it was difficult to watch my friends who didn't go to college and they were hired or on the police force and making money right away while I'm breaking, working four jobs, trying to make ends meet, thinking to myself, is this work? man, like I'm starving. This <laughs> dude's mm-hmm. eating over here. But looking at at the long run, it's worked out. I'm fine. I'm stable. And the field that I'm in is, is pretty accessible as far as job availability when needed. So sticking it through, that was really
0: tough because I wagered back and forth. Do I just drop out? Do I just quit? But I couldn't do it. And I think this is a great time for me to ask this question. If you could offer one piece of advice to that listener, and I usually don't do this, but I think, I don't know, I just feel it. Like that person that that may be struggling and thinking they should give up on something or thinking they should give up on their education. What type of advice would you give to them, Prince?
1: I would say you have to push through and see the bigger picture. Have some self-care along the way because it is challenging. It's not easy, but anything worth having is not going to be easy. Push through. That's what I did. I just kept. I just put my head down to the plow and just kept moving forward. And it took some support and push. My wife was a big impact on on helping me finding out what direction I needed to go in that aspect. And I try to preach that to college students nowadays. They talk about, "Well, oh, it's hard." It is that that. And I'm like, man, just do it.
0: Just got to do it. Prince, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I mean, this has been. I'm definitely going to listen to the episode. Yeah. I'm gonna listen to it again. Like I listen to all the episodes, but this one <laughs> I think there's going to be so many nuggets in this. And you've been incredible. If people want to get more of Prince Marshall, if they want to see where can they find you? Like what social medias are you active on?
1: I'm trying this out. So I'm trying to build a little side hustle platform. I'm at the ground up on Twitter. So DA ground up because I've started from the ground up, basically nothing. Right. If you like Tupac, I like that poem, roses to concrete. So that's kind of where I see myself. I have a website that's currently under construction. It's thegroundup.com. You can find me on there. Email is thegroundup at
0: gmail.com. Love it. Once again, like I said, Prince, thanks for coming on to the show. I know the listeners are going to be blessed by this. We'll make sure that we follow you. I'll get at you on Twitter. I'm on Twitter all the time. So, and like I said before, this is the Minority Money Podcast, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly. And until next time. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast in whatever podcast app you're listening to on now. And give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and to be supported by others just like you. And again, we're super happy to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it cannot be completely your one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But guess what? If you have any questions, or maybe you just like to chat, please reach out to me directly at emlin at MinorityMoney.com so that we can get to know each other there. Thanks for being here, and we're signing off.